So at some point or another, you're going to get discouraged. Maybe you're there now. And depending on your personality and your temperament and your situation, it might be easier or more difficult for you to become discouraged. I have a friend who describes himself normally as uh, the, glass half is, the glass is half empty and leaking. Right? So if that's your kind of general makeup, then you're probably a bit more prone to discouragement. And you might be a very happy-go-lucky kind of person who, you know, it just doesn't take, you know, nothing can get you down, but eventually something's going to get you down. And the question is, how are you going to deal with it? How do you deal with it? I mean, life is filled with trials and tests and tensions and difficulties. Life is filled with limits and losses. This is something that I talk with regularly, the counselor that I meet with on a regular basis. Almost every time we talk, it seems like somehow or another it ends up coming back to having to make peace with the limits and losses in my life. I'm limited, just like you are, right? You know you're limited. You're not God, right? God knows everything and is everywhere and can do everything. You can't do that. I can't do that. We're limited, And there's losses we experience, and the losses are different depending on kind of our situation and what we go through. Maybe it's a loss of some sort of dream or expectation related to a career. Maybe it's a loss as related to how you hoped your family might turn out. Maybe it's a loss in terms of an actual loss of somebody that's been close to you and have passed away or just aren't really in your life anymore. Maybe it's a loss of your health. Maybe it's a loss of all different kinds. But we have these limits and we have these losses. We have these tests. We have these trials. How are you going to get through it? How do you get through it? There's a few ways that a lot of us try to get through it. And just normally, one is we medicate. You know, we just get kind of overwhelmed by the pain, get overwhelmed by the frustration, get just, and, and we just go, I just can't handle it. And we just medicate. So we turn to alcohol or we turn to prescription drugs or we turn to some other kind of drugs or we turn to food, turn to the internet. Let's just distract ourselves with TV or with Sometimes you turn to shopping. Oh, if I could just get some new shoes, then I'd feel better. You know what that's called? Medication. And we kind of medicate ourselves and just imagine if I can numb the pain somehow through something else, then I won't have to think about this. That's one way. Another way is just to sort of ignore it. You know, kind of maybe you grew up in a more stoic kind of household, real stiff upper lip, you know, where the motto of your household was suck it up, buttercup. And if that's you, then when you go through times where you start to feel discouraged, you just go, you know what, I just got to keep plowing, I just got to keep going, I can't think about this, I just got to ignore it. Another way that we deal with this is we pretend. We sort of gloss, you know, we apply a thick gloss of positivity to it, kind of Instagram approach, where you just feel like, I'm just going to find all the inspirational quotes that I can post to make myself feel better. You pretend that really you're not hurting but you are. Or maybe you just crumple under the pressure and the weight of it. Maybe you went okay for a while, and then you medicated for a while, and then you ignored it for a while, and then you pretended it was okay for a while, and now you're just folding. I think there's another way, and Paul models it and describes it here in this passage tonight, is how we can fight discouragement He's taken a brief parenthesis in this book that he's writing, this letter to the Ephesians, and, and the question is why? Why has he done that? Just to review with you, if you haven't been with us or if you maybe haven't been thinking about the big picture as we're just sort of slowly plodding through this book, let me remind you, the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, is one long run-on sentence describing the glorious gospel of God. All the things that God had promised to Israel and done for Israel and how those are fulfilled and completed in Christ 
through his church. In chapter, in the end of chapter one, Paul prays, and he's so thankful for the incredible inheritance that the people get to have in Christ. Then in chapter two, chapter two becomes all about reconciliation, reconciliation with God, that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. We're saved by grace. We're reconciled to God. But the second half of Ephesians 2 is all about the other kind of reconciliation that happens, which is these people who couldn't previously get along, in this case Jew and Gentile, all of a sudden now are one. They're united in Christ. There's reconciliation not just between us and God, but between us and one another. And what he's about to do is, is pray. He's about to pray that all the things he's been talking about in chapters 1 and chapter 2 are going to be things that we really lean into. And so that's actually going to be his prayer that we'll look at in a couple weeks in verse 14. Look at what it says there. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And he's going to go on and say, I pray that you would have the strength to appreciate all that God's done for you. But before he does that, verses 1 to 13 of chapter 3 are this kind of odd break. And you can actually tell that Paul meant to start praying in verse 1. Because look at verse 1 and verse 14 start the same way. For this reason. So Paul's about to, he was about to break into prayer, but he said something in verse 1 that made him stop. That made him say, you know what, I need to explain something. What did he say in verse 1? He said, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, wait a second, hold on, I have some explaining to do. So to understand what's going on with this, I just want you to imagine that uh, you're maybe new to a church. And you're new to a church, and maybe it's a place where God's gotten a hold of your life, or maybe you were a Christian before, but now you're part of this church, and you're really growing in your faith, and you really love this church. You haven't been there long, you know, a number of months, not, not quite a year but you're starting to meet people. You've gotten connected a little bit with some of the leaders. Maybe you have a role of serving. You just feel like, wow, God's stirring something in me here. This is really great. Maybe you've even started to invite some friends and told them about it. And I want you to imagine that one day you, you're there at the church service and the pastor gets up and says, hey, I've got some incredible news. We just got a letter from our founding pastor. And you go, oh, wow, I, didn't, I don't know anything about the founding pastor. What? And you kind of lean over to someone that has been near, you know, in the church for longer. You go, who's the founding pastor? And they say, oh, uh, he's in jail. <laughs> well, now you're not really hearing what's being read, right? Your mind's just going, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. The founding pastor's in jail. I got some questions now. Like, I kind of liked this church, but now I got some questions. What's, what do you mean the founding pastor's in jail? And that's the experience someone might have had in the church in Ephesus when they heard verse 1. Remember, these letters were read out loud to the congregation. And so, so get this. If, if you are around Christianity, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know the Bible, we are so used to the idea of that Paul was in prison, we just blow right by this. Oh yeah, Paul's in prison, Paul got arrested, Paul's in prison, Paul got arrested. We, we, we don't even think about it. Think about this. Verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He knows that the minute he raises that, not only are there some people who maybe don't know that full story, but there are other people who have to be wondering, how's he doing? I mean, this guy who helped found this church in Ephesus, how's he doing now? How's he holding up? And you, and you actually, maybe if you care about him, you start to get discouraged because you think, man, this guy who's such a warrior for the faith is, is in prison. And, and Paul actually takes this whole section in order that the Ephesians wouldn't get discouraged. Look at what it says in verse 13. 
Here's his conclusion to this whole parenthesis he just did. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. He says, I, I, I'm, I'm asking, Ephesians, please, don't get discouraged. This whole section that I'm just telling you about, I, I want you to know I'm not discouraged, and I don't want you to be discouraged. And he gives us in this section, I think, four ways to fight discouragement. Four things that he kind of has in his framework that helped him not to be discouraged that would allow the people reading this to not be discouraged and I think could actually help us to fight through our discouragement. So let's pray and then we'll look at those four things. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it teaches us and molds us and guides us. And we ask you now to speak to us, Lord. There are some tonight for whom uh, discouragement and suffering and pain uh, feels a bit like an abstraction or something that I guess we ought to get ready for that in the future because that's probably coming. And I pray that today would help them get ready. God, for others, they, they came in tonight even barely able to come because they already are discouraged and hurting and they need a touch from you. God, I pray that they'd hear your voice tonight through your word. God, for everybody in between, would you meet us here? Would you speak to us? Rather than leaving our problems outside the door, could we actually bring them in and lay them at your feet and invite you to meet with us in the midst of it? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, Paul here points out four things that I think can help us fight discouragement. To fight discouragement, remember that your suffering, number one, is allowed by Jesus. If you want to fight discouragement like Paul did, Remember that your suffering is allowed by Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Notice how Paul describes himself as a prisoner. He doesn't say, Paul, a prisoner of Rome. Paul, a prisoner of Caesar. He doesn't even just say, Paul, a prisoner. He says, no, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Jesus. Why is Paul in prison? Because he's been preaching about Christ. And who is the one that is in charge of Paul being in prison? Who reigns and rules over all of it? Who's allowing it? Who's working in it? Christ Jesus. This is not an accident. Paul does not seem to think that, you know, Jesus is up there wringing his hands in heaven going, oh my gosh, how did Paul end up here? But rather that Jesus is intimately acquainted with and intertwined and even working through it. Some of you know the story of Corrie Ten Boom. Her and her sister Betsy were in a concentration camp in World War II. She wrote a book called The Hiding Place, and one of the stories she tells in there is about how uh, this uh, bunk house, so to speak, that, that they were in was just absolutely rancid, and it smelled, and it was disgusting, and it was infested with fleas. And... Uh, the guards all sort of stayed away from this one particular place. They gave them a surprising amount of peace that they didn't really give to a lot of the other prisoners. And so uh, they had Bible studies and actually were able to lead people to faith and to pray quite openly in this little house. And one day they were reading in 1 Thessalonians where uh, the Apostle Paul writes that you should give thanks in all circumstances. And they said, you know what, we need to start giving thanks for everything. So they started giving thanks. Well, they were pretty fed up with the fleas. These fleas that were all over this particular you know, bunkhouse was just driving them crazy. I say bunkhouse, that makes it sound like camp, but you get it. 
fleas everywhere. It's disgusting everywhere. And they had been complaining about it. And one of the people said, hey, hey, didn't we just read that we're supposed to give thanks in all circumstances? Well, if we're supposed to give thanks in all circumstances, then we need to give thanks for the fleas. Some of them were like, uh, are you sure? Yeah. So they gave thanks for the fleas. What they came to find out later is the reason they were given so much kind of breathing room and so much space from the guards was because the guards didn't want to go be near the fleas. So the thing that they were so bothered by was actually the thing that was a gift of God that God was allowing and God was using in order to give them the kind of protection and space that he wanted to give them. Your suffering is allowed by Jesus. You are a prisoner for Christ Jesus. You are a cancer patient for Christ Jesus. You are unemployed for Christ Jesus. You are childless for Christ Jesus. You are grieving for Christ Jesus. He is in it and he is with you. To fight discouragement, remember that your suffering is allowed by Jesus. Number two, to fight discouragement, remember that your suffering is part of a bigger story. Your suffering's part of a bigger story. This is verses two to nine. When you see this, you know, Paul kind of interrupts himself, as I said, and he, he begins to help the Ephesians see the bigger story that he sees his imprisonment as just part of. So in verse two, he says, I'm assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me, my revelation, as I've written briefly. He talks about the mystery of the gospel, and that's that phrase mystery that he's using to describe how God is bringing these, all these things together. He says in verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister, a servant, a waiter, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. See, Paul says, I'm not just a prisoner. You don't get this. I'm part of a bigger story. And here's the bigger story. Verse 8. I get to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, even though I'm the very least of all the saints. Paul sees himself as the very least of all the saints, and that's what makes this so amazing. The very least gets to preach the very best. And Paul takes an element of pleasure, even, as you read the rest of his writing, in, in that irony. In 2 Corinthians, he talks about his resume. All the, the peop- there were some false teachers in Corinth who were troubling the people, saying, hey, you really shouldn't listen to Paul. He's not that impressive. He's not that good of a speaker. He's pretty short. And you just, you know, you don't want to listen to him. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians, says, no, you really should listen to me, and here's why you should listen to me. I've been beaten up more than anybody I've been shipwrecked, shipwrecked more than anybody. I've been left for dead. And he just lists all these things. I've been weak, I've been weak, I've been weak, I've been weak, I've been weak. But when I'm weak, then Christ is strong. So my resume is my weakness. I'm boasting in my weakness. Why? Because my weakness is part of a bigger story. There's a place in Genesis where we read about Joseph. Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And uh, Joseph is sold into slavery. 
by his brothers. They want to kill him. They decide, no, let's go ahead and just sell him into slavery. And he actually ends up reunited with them many years later. And do you know what he says in Genesis 50, 20? He says, what you meant for evil, brothers, when you sold me into slavery, what you meant for evil, God meant for good to save all kinds of lives. Now, here's what's fascinating. you got to pay attention to those words. Notice, he did not say, what you meant for evil, God used for good. As if God is sort of picking up the broken pieces of human choice and kind of trying to assemble that into something beautiful. No, no, no. This is even more amazing than that, is what they, what the brothers meant, crafted, designed, created for evil, in the very same moment, God was creating, designing, crafting something good. This is how God works. God does bigger things than what we see in the moment. That's the whole point of the book of Job. The book of Job is about this guy who's experiencing unbelievable suffering. His children all die. Much of his property is destroyed. He starts to have all kinds of physical sickness. His body's covered in boils. He's scraping his skin with a pottery shard. His wife's the only one left. And that's no comfort. Because she says to him, well, why don't you just curse God and die? And he's thinking, really, God? Of all the people that you left alive, you left her? Like, couldn't you have taken her? But she's still there, right? And you have 40 chapters of them trying to figure out what's going on with this. And all Job's friends show up and try to tell him, well, clearly, bad stuff happens to bad people. So since bad stuff happened to you, Job, do the math. Some of you have friends like that? Or if you're not healed, if you're not better, if you're not, you know, living some sort of thriving life, well, what'd you do wrong, right? That's Job's friends. So the whole book is Job saying, what, what's going on here, God? I, I, how's this work? And the friends saying, how's this work? But what you know, if you read the book of Job from the very beginning, is you have the, the curtain of heaven sort of, you get to go behind the curtain. And what you understand is that God is doing something bigger, And that God is making it where he's revealing himself to Job in such a way where at the end of the book, Job can say, God, I've heard of you before, but now I've seen you. Whether it's Joseph, whether it's Job, God's writing a bigger story. This is core to the gospel. Because it isn't just Joseph and it's not just Job. It's also Jesus. How does salvation for humanity come through weakness, through a boy born to an unwed teenage mother living in a nowhere place called Nazareth, living a life of smallness and homelessness and exile and pain. And then doing everything right. I mean, fully obeying God the way that Adam was supposed to in the beginning. This second Adam, Jesus, passed all the tests that Adam failed. And in spite of that, he still is suffering on the cross. Why? (laughs) That's the gospel. God's writing a bigger story. God is doing something bigger through the suffering and through the pain, even of Jesus. We have life because Jesus tasted death. Do you see this? Listen, if you want to fight discouragement, you have to remember that God is writing a bigger story. Now, here's the thing that's so hard about this, is you don't always, in this life, get to know what the story is. 
See, sometimes when you're experiencing hardship, people will quote verses like Romans 8, 28, such a wonderful verse, that God works all things for good, not just for all people in general, but that God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's true, but here's the thing. You don't always get to see it all worked for good in your life. You don't always get to see how the story's gonna end. Sometimes you still die. Sometimes it doesn't seem to get better. But if you cling to the scriptures and if you cling to what you know is God's heart for you because of how he's revealed himself in Jesus, you know that he's writing a bigger story. There's a third way to fight discouragement that Paul utilizes here. And that's to remember that your suffering is preaching a sermon. To remember that your suffering is preaching a sermon. God is working far bigger than we can imagine through what is far weaker than we can imagine, and specifically, it's the church. So all of that, all of that story that Paul's been part of, look at where it's leading in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He says, listen, I'm suffering so that I can be the least of all preaching the greatest message. And the reason I'm doing that is so that the very wisdom of God could be made known, could be proclaimed, could be revealed, could be declared to the powers and the principalities, the rulers and authorities. Now, we said last week, Josh was preaching, and, and he pointed out rightly that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that Paul references in verse 10, that's referring to angels and demons, the spiritual realm. Now, we get real spooked about that. Ooh, what's, that what's that talking about? But in Ephesus, they were obsessed with this. Right? They knew in Ephesus that there were spiritual powers. When you read Acts 19, which is where Paul showed up for the first time to Ephesus, you see that when the gospel came there, people burned all their magic books because they were obsessed with these spells where you could try to you know, say the right thing that would have, give you power over the demonic realm. Paul says, hey, 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 you want to know what gets the demonic realm's attention? It's not a spell. It's the church. Now, if you know anything about the church then or now, you go, what? Really? The church is God's plan A? Yeah, and there's no plan B. Which means that the greatness of God, the great wisdom of God is being revealed, it's being made known through all the weak, ordinary, limited, losing, tempted, tried, church. That's amazing. Which what that means is that whatever we're going through and whatever discouragement we're facing, if we can push through that suffering, we are actually preaching a sermon with our lives. What we're saying is there is something I love and treasure more than my comfort, more than my career, more than my family. I have a treasure named Jesus and he's the one sustaining me. That's what suffering allows you to do. Some of you know John Piper. He's an author and a pastor who's deeply influenced me and, and a number of other people. In 2006, he had prostate cancer. He wrote an article on the eve before he went in for surgery for prostate cancer that I think is one of the top, most all-time read hosts on their website. I know that my mother-in-law, when she had breast cancer, she sent this to our family and said, if you want to pray for me, pray 
pray this. And the article is called, Don't Waste Your Cancer. And in that article, here's something that Piper says. He says, Christians are never anywhere by divine accident. There are reasons for why we wind up where we do. Consider what Jesus said about painful, unplanned circumstances. Here he quotes Luke 21. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Piper writes, so it is with cancer. This will be an opportunity to bear witness. Christ is infinitely worthy. Here is a golden opportunity to show that he is worth more than life. Don't waste it. See, listen, when you're suffering, but you still have joy, when you're in a situation that everyone thinks you should be hopeless, but you actually have hope, people start to lean in. People start to go, what? And, and your endurance is preaching to them that you have a treasure more valuable than your own health or your own life or your own future. Your treasure is Christ. And that leads to our final way to fight discouragement is to fight discouragement. Remember that your suffering, number four, can't keep you from your treasure. Remember that your suffering can't keep you from your treasure. Paul says all of this, verses 11 and 12, was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. I want you to get how powerful of a change has happened if you're in Christ. And the way to get this is you've got to look at chapter 2, verse 12, and chapter 3, verse 12, okay? So if you have a paper Bible, just look to the column to the left or turn a page or whatever. If you have a you know, phone, just scroll, scroll over. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. In Ephesians 2.12, we see the depths of our alienation apart from Christ. It says this, remember, he's speaking to the Gentiles, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's our condition. We're without God, we're without hope, we're not part of the people of God, we're not reconciled to one another. We are at the depths of alienation. Now, go to 3.12, and you see that in Christ, we move from the depths of alienation to the heights of inclusion and participation. Look at what it says. In whom, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Do you get that? You go from being excluded, from being cast aside, to being warmly welcomed in. Why? Because Christ has become your treasure. It's through faith in him. So get this. Your suffering, therefore, if you are in Christ, does not move you further away from your treasure, but closer to it. Now, this raises a key question. What is your treasure? Because if your treasure is your health, then as your health declines, you're moving away from your treasure. If your treasure is money and stuff and toys and fun technology, then suffering and death is moving you away from your treasure. If your treasure, your ultimate treasure, is your family, 
and certain people that you're banking your life on, suffering and death moves you away from your treasure. But listen, if your treasure is Christ, then suffering and difficulty and pain, all it does is drive you closer to him because he's the one who is with you in the midst of it. And ultimately, even if they kill Paul, Paul will say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Why? Because Christ was his treasure. You can fight discouragement if you remember that your suffering can't keep you from your treasure. Where's your treasure? If you're a follower of Christ, your treasure is Christ. Here's what it says in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is the prayer of a genuine follower of Jesus. Who do I have but you, God? Right, it's not because we haven't looked. We've looked, we've sought, we've placed our hope and trust in all sorts of other things, but you become a Christian and over time, even after you're a Christian, you realize like that stuff doesn't pay off. Who do I have in heaven but you, God? My strength and my heart may fail, but God, you're the strength. You're my portion. You're enough. Are you discouraged tonight? You may have every good, legitimate reason to be. It may be very well that if me or if anyone else was in your shoes, we'd feel just as discouraged as you are. And I want to encourage you, don't medicate it. Don't ignore it. Don't pretend it's not there. And don't fold under it. Instead, see it as part of Christ's loving plan for you as part of a bigger story, as an opportunity to share to the world that he is your ultimate treasure and a chance to move closer to him. Lean in there and you'll be able to fight that discouragement. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for you to surround those who are discouraged and suffering tonight. Lord, you tell us in your word that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And so God, would you be saving and would you be moving close to your people? God, thank you for even Paul's sensitivity as he wrote this letter, understanding the kind of questions that might come up through his own imprisonment and his desire that we would not and that the Ephesians would not lose heart because of his suffering, but rather that we would see our suffering as an opportunity to trust you in ways that demonstrate to ourselves and to our family and to the watching world, even the angels and powers and principalities, that you are our treasure. Thank you for Jesus who brings us to himself through his weakness and writes a new story. We pray in his name. Amen.